moment we've been waiting for is here. Welcome to the Storytellers Podcast. I am your host, Cornell Thomas. Thank you so much for coming on board to my first podcast with guests. If you know me at all, you know I have another podcast called Population Unplugged, where I am solo like Bolo. A little bit of information about me for you guys that are coming on here for the first time. I am an international speaker, author, social entrepreneur, husband, father, unicorn tamer, all things in between. And I am fascinated with stories. Since the beginning of time, we have had people tell us stories. Now, back in the days, they were called griots in Africa. A griot is someone that would collect stories and tell them. It was almost like a human library. So when a griot passed away, it was almost like a library was burning down. So what they did is they trained their families so they had generations of griots because you have to memorize everybody's story in the village. I feel the same way when I go out and I share my story with others because in my story, there are so many messages that are stuck in between. Messages of overcoming adversity, messages of hope and faith, messages of triumph, messages of struggle. And I think there's power in our stories. So I wanted to get people on to my podcast and have them tell me three to five stories that helped make them who they are. Very important. If you look back in your life and you think about the stories in your life that absolutely changed it. How would that look? How would you how would you explain it to someone? How would you pass that on? I'm passing stories down on right now to my kids. I want them to know about their grandfathers who they never met. I want them to know about me when I was younger, their mom when she was younger, so they can pass it down and pass it down and pass it down. So I decided for the first episode, why don't I share five stories that make me who I am today? So the first story, if this was like a book chapter, I would call it Weight Watchers. My mom was in a group called Weight Watcher, which is still prevalent today. I was, I think, in sixth grade. Yeah, I was in sixth grade. And I remember going up to my mom and asking her if we could order a pizza. Now, you have to have to understand something. My father, Bobby Thomas, passed away when I was four years old. So my mom raised five of us since I was four up until this point. So we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of means. And when Tina Thomas said something like no, then that was the answer. There was no there was no going back and forth. My mom says no, that's it. So I asked my mom if we could, if I can order a pizza because I was starving. And I know we had leftovers in the refrigerator, but I didn't want leftovers. There's sometimes where you just want something else. And I wanted a pizza. So my mom looks at me, she says no. And that was it. I walk away and I sat on the bed and I started to think. Now, Weight Watchers gave my mom a box of chocolate chip cookies. Now, I want to say something. Before you your mouth starts watering, you start trying to get some milk. Understand that these cookies taste like what death would taste like. They were absolutely horrible. There are five kids in the house. We tried them once and never ate them again. And my mom had a box of about a hundred of them sitting in a room for, I don't know, months. Nobody was touching them. And so I went up to my mom and I said, Mom, 
can I have the box of cookies? My mom looked at me and she said, sure, baby boy. She goes, but don't eat them all. And I'm thinking to myself, you ain't got to worry about those shit. Like, I'm not eating these cookies at all. And so I took the cookies to my room. I opened my closet. I was on a baseball team, a little minor league baseball team. I throw my uniform on. I go out the back door because I don't want my mom to see me. And I walk up and down my street selling these death cookies to my neighbors. <laughs> I get back home. I have an empty box. I sold the packages of cookies for 50 cents. I have $50 in my pocket, which in sixth grade, that's like having a million dollars. My mom is waiting for me on the front porch. And she looks at me, and I put my head down immediately. And she goes, Cornell, where are the cookies? And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, this is how I die. Like, this is how it all ends. And I look up at my mom, and I put my head back down. And I said, Mom, I sold them to our neighbors. And right before I thought my life was going to flash in front of me, my mom gave me a hug, kissed me on the forehead, started laughing and said, I don't worry about you, baby boy. <laughs> now, the importance of that story is, right now, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't work for anybody. I work for myself. And if my mom would have yelled at me or got mad at me for doing that, right, I, who knows if I'd be an entrepreneur? Who knows if I'd have the spirit inside of me? But the fact that she complimented, the, complimented me for making something out of nothing, for taking a problem and finding the solution, that was everything. And that really shaped who I am today in terms of how I do business and how I look at problems. My second story, laser tag. Back in the day, like I'm an 80s, 90s baby, so back in the day when laser tag guns first came out, you couldn't tell anybody anything. Like that was the thing. If you had a laser tag gun, you were that dude. And me and my brother Ramon wanted laser tag guns so bad. He's two years older than me. And we were just like, we got to get laser tag guns. We got to get laser tag guns. The problem was, is they were 19.99, And that's 19.99 more than we had. We didn't have a penny to our name. We didn't have enough money to get lemon heads. For all my old school kids, heads, you know what I'm talking about. So my mom said, Ramon, Cornell, some of the brothers from the congregation, from church, they need help uh, moving some stuff out of a dumpster. Now, I'm, again, I'm like in seventh grade or something. And me and my brother's like, okay, we'll help. And my mom said, okay, well, they're going to give you $20 at the end of the day. So when you're young, you don't know that $20 for, you know, eight hours of work is probably not the best deal. Uh, it's probably more like sweatshop labor. But we needed $19.99. And that's all we saw was the goal. So me and my brother rushed there Saturday. They give us bagels in the morning. So we're living like kings. We clean it up. We have $20 in our pocket. All is great. The next day on Sunday, I'm thinking to myself, I cannot wait to buy this laser tag gun. We're going to have so much fun. We're driving back from church. It's my mom in the front, me in the passenger seat, and my sister, Alicia, in the back. Now, Alicia is the youngest of the family. She's two years younger than I am. I'm the second youngest. And she is the princess. So my mom, as hard as she was on the boys, she's a little bit less hard on Alicia. So we're driving back home from church, and Alicia goes, Mommy, can we stop by the store? My mom said, Alicia, we don't have any money. I, don't, I can't stop by the store. I don't have any money to get you anything. And Alicia goes, but Mom. And I'm, 
I'm not paying attention. I'm just thinking folks on laser tag gun. But that the second time she said, but mom sounded different. It sounded like maybe my sister didn't know who was driving the car. Maybe she has amnesia. So I just kind of looked back at her and gave her the look like, you know, calm it down. And my mom goes, Alicia, we don't have the money to stop to the store. And then Alicia did something that you just do not do in black families. Alicia went and smacked her lips. I don't know what it is, but it's something in the DNA. You just don't smack your lips in a black person's home. So I'm thinking, all right, well, my sister's going to die today. Let me get on some rest in peace t-shirts. I don't know how the funeral procession is going to be. My mom's going to pull the car over. And before my mom could say something, I found myself reaching in my pocket and giving my sister the $20 that I worked so hard for. I said, Alicia, here. And I just kind of threw the $20 back. And my mom looked at me and she said, Alicia, what do you say? And Alicia's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why couldn't we have had a boy? And so my mom goes to the store. Alicia gets her stuff. And we drive home. I'm hella angry, upset, hurt that my brother's going to have a laser tag gun, and I'm not. So I don't know if it was like a week or a couple days that went by. And I'm sitting in my room. And my mom walks in. And she puts $40 on my dresser. And I take $20 and I give it back to her. And I say, Mom, I only gave Alicia 20 And this beautiful woman looks me right in the eyes. And she goes, baby boy, when you give, you get back double. I gave my sister $20, even though I didn't want to. I gave it to her without, with knowing I wasn't going to get anything back. And that was the lesson my mom taught me that day. Like, you didn't expect anything back, you just gave. And I'll never, ever forget that. And transitioning into my next story, story number three. It's one of the biggest giving stories outside of that one that has ever happened in my life. It's called Ray. This is a chapter in my first book. I think it's the second chapter in my first book. It's about a man named Ray. Now, when I was 16 years old, I decided to take up basketball. Now, if you see me, you know, I'm about 6'5", black dude, you know, look pretty athletic, you would think that I probably played back, grew up playing basketball, and that is not the case. Nobody in my family played basketball, so I never played basketball. And for some reason, one day I'm sitting in Birdsness, Virginia, where my mom was from, country girl, and I looked under my cousin's bed, and there was all these newspaper articles about him playing basketball. So I, I decided I want to play basketball. I didn't have an identity. People didn't know me for anything. And I thought, maybe I can be in the paper. Maybe I can get a date. You know, maybe I can stop wearing these god-awful hammer pants so people like me more. And so when I got home, I found this little Pizza Hut basketball in our basement. I walked to the nearest court. We moved from Passaic to Rockway, New Jersey. The nearest court was three and a half miles away. I looked at the hoop. I took my first shot, and the ball went over the hoop and rolled down the hill. I did that for two more hours, and I realized something. I suck at basketball. Like, I'm, I'm really bad. Like, I'm god-awful. And as I'm sitting there, figuring out how I'm going to get to the NBA if I can't put the ball in this cylinder, this five foot eight Filipino dude comes walking towards the court. 
This is like a, I know what you're thinking. This is like a, almost like a Karate Kid situation. And he walks over and goes, my name is Ray. Do you want me to show you how to shoot a basketball? Now think about the, the visual here. Think about the aesthetics here, right? You're driving past the court. You see this, you know, at that time I was like a six foot one, you know, black dude, high top. And this little five foot eight, five foot nine Filipino cat. And you would think that I'm definitely showing this dude how to play basketball. But this is why I tell people, never judge a book by its color. Color, not cover. Because for the next two hours, Ray showed me how to properly shoot a basketball. And when Ray left, I was still not good at basketball. But I was a little bit better than when he showed up. And he planted this seed in my head that if I work hard enough at this, I can get better. And it changed the course of my life. And that's why I wrote a chapter about him. I only saw Ray about three times, four times after that first day. And one of the days I saw Ray was right when I got a scholarship to play basketball in college. I went from literally nothing, getting cut from varsity as a junior in high school, everything, to working my way into getting a full scholarship. And I was walking in the mall. And Ray was there. I mean, I've only seen this dude three times. I haven't seen him in years. I'm walking in the mall, and I see him in a store. And I go up to him, and I give him a big hug, and I tell him what happened. And he goes, I knew you'd make it. And I, you know, I was a mess. I just cried. But what a great story about giving. Because Ray gave me something that you can't get back. You can get back money. You can't get back your time. And that was such an important lesson for me. And uh, that's why I give my time so freely now to people because of what Ray did for me. My fourth story is called Biscuit. <laughs> Biscuit. <laughs> my mom, like I said, is a country girl from Burns, Virginia. And country people, country folk, have some of the craziest analogies that you could ever imagine. When I was about 17, 18 years old, I told my mom, that I want to play in the NBA. And the reason I want to play in the NBA is because I wanted this woman to never have to work one of the three jobs that she's been working since I was little. I wanted her to sit down and relax and rest. I want to say, Mom, I got this. And so I'm sitting down and my mom knows. She sees how hard I'm working. She sees that I'm a crazy person. I'm literally just a psycho, just training every single day, not going to proms, just it's me and the basketball. My mom looks at me and we're sitting at the kitchen table, just me and her. And she goes, baby boy. And she's looking at me right in my eye. And she has so much fire. I'm just like, oh my goodness, what's about to happen? She goes, you got to treat that basketball like a biscuit. And I'm, I was like, what? Wait, <laughs> excuse me? So inside, I am cracking up laughing. On the outside, I'm doing my best to hold my smirk in because, again, I love my life. I don't want to lose it laughing at my mom. And before I can ask her why a biscuit, she goes on to the next sentence. And she goes, baby boy, you need to treat basketball like it's your only food source. Like it's the only thing that you have. And when I thought about it like that, I said, this country-ass story, analogy, is 100% true. If I treat basketball like this was it, 
This is all I got. Man, what would stop me from training every day? What would stop me from working hard? What would stop me from finishing sprints? Nothing. Because this is all I have. And I'll never forget that story. I'll never forget my mom telling me that. And me going from laughing inside to just wanting to hug my mom and getting fired up. I just like, I ran out the house that next day just to work out and train because she was right. And I will tell you right now, if your goal or your dream or whatever you want to accomplish, if you're looking at that like your only way to eat and you have work ethic and faith, it's going to happen. My last story. This story is called Bryce and Bobby. My father is Bobby Thomas. He was a police officer in the city of Passaic, New Jersey. He did all these things for the community, all these things for people. But I did not know my father. I didn't have a relationship with my father. I have two, I think two and a half memories of my father that's my own. I was only four when he passed away. And I remember going, being, in, being at his funeral and seeing a sea of people and wondering why there are so many people in the park. And later on, I will find out, you know, my dad was a police officer and back then, Police used to walk the beat, so he knew everybody. Now think about this. This is the early 60s. He's like one of the first black officers uh, ever in Passaic, and he's the only one that's bilingual at the time. He spoke Spanish. He was originally from Georgia, and when he moved to Passaic at 17, he moved in with a Spanish-speaking family that knew English but only spoke Spanish to him so he could learn it, so he can communicate with everybody. So... When he passed, they named the award after him, Bobby Thomas Award, for the officer that did the most community service. Because he would do food drives and toy drives, and he'd break, he brought the Sugar Hill Gang to number 11 Park, all these music acts, and he would drive his chief crazy because they didn't have the money for it, and my dad still figured out a way. He didn't have a lot of money when he passed away, but he left such a big legacy, big enough legacy for them to name the street after him, a big enough legacy for them to still honor the police officer with the most community service today, 40-some years later. And so he left really big footprints when he passed. And uh, I didn't feel a connection to my father until I started speaking. And it was almost like he was saying, I've been waiting for you. I just didn't feel that connection. You know, I, I missed him. But when I started writing... And I started speaking. I felt him. And I don't know if anybody's hearing this can relate. When you lose a family member or a friend where it's hard to explain. It's just a feeling. You can feel them. And um, I just started feeling my dad. You know, when I started speaking in my first book, uh, The Power of Positivity. In that book, I have a letter to my father. It's called Letter to Bobby. And I was so emotionally introverted growing up <clears throat> that I didn't I couldn't express, you know, what I felt. And writing allowed me to express that. And in that letter I told him all the things that I'm doing now. We were expecting my firstborn Bryce. And I knew when my wife was pregnant, I knew that she had a boy in her stomach. I knew it for a fact. 
And I told her, when she told me she was pregnant, that we're going to have a son. And she just laughed at me because she knows that I'm crazy. And she goes, how do you know? I said, don't worry. We're going to have a son. We're going to name him Bryce because I want Bryce to have the same initials as his, as his grandfather. I want Bryce to be a BT. So I was speaking at a, a special educator's assembly, and there's 250 people. And at the end of my speech, an uh, older man came up to me, and he goes, I knew your father. Introduced himself, said his name was Vern. And I, I you know, gave him a hug, and he goes, your father is one, I was one of those kids your father helped get off the streets because my father did a junior police program. So I talk about my dad a lot in front of Bryce. Um, Bryce, both his grandfathers have passed on my side and um, my wife's side. You know, right before Bryce was born, uh, he passed away, Steve. But I talk about my dad a lot to, to Bryce and his pictures of my dad and his uniform. And Bryce was about, I want to say, four years old. And we were, you know, wrestling in, in the room and, you know, just... <laughs> just being father-son, just joking around. And Bryce looked at me, and he said, um, he said, uh, your father will be proud of you. And there's like something magical about kids where I do feel that they get messages from a different place. Because to this day, I, I do not know, I know now, but I had no, I, no idea how a four-year-old would be able to download that type of information and then say that to me. And it was just a special story. I mean, I just, I will never forget it. And when he said it, I was like I am now, uh, in tears. And I received the message from my dad. I said, I get it, right? Like, I get it. So there are hundreds of stories that I can sit here and tell you that have helped shape my life. But I wanted to give you five today. And welcome you to the Storytellers Podcast. Uh, we're going to have guests from every different dialect, race, religion, hue that you can think of. And they're going to be sharing their unique stories with you on here. So thank you so much for listening in. And pass it on.